You are tuned to KVMR FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, February 1st, 2021, and this is the KVMR Evening News. I'm Joyce Miller, and I'll be anchoring the newscast on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'd like to start my first assignment by thanking Paul Emery, Felton Pruitt, and Charlotte Peterson for their years of service bringing the news to KVMR listeners. For their support, we thank Serino's at Main Street in Grass Valley, serving Italian cuisine since 1983, reopening when safety conditions allow with customized private dining spaces called Snugs, prioritizing customer safety when dining in Nevada County, serinosatmainstreet.com. And Four Paws Animal Clinic, providing medical, dental, surgical services, alternative therapies, and cat boarding for cherished companions on Searles Avenue, Nevada City. Dr. Susan Murphy and staff proudly support KVMR. F-O-U-R-P-A-W-S-A-C.com. After the NPR headlines, we'll have the California Report from KQED, followed by a roundup of local news and regional weather. Then we'll have an interview with Frank McLean, about a conference last weekend on how domestic violence and sexual assault touch us all. And KVMR's new news director, Claudio Mendonca, will close out the newscast with a commentary. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. The Biden administration is asking the Supreme Court to cancel upcoming oral arguments in cases about the border wall and the so-called remain in Mexico policy. NPR's Joel Rose reports the administration made that request in court papers filed today. The Supreme Court is scheduled to hear arguments later this month in a case over funding for the wall on the U.S.-Mexico border and next month in a case about the Remain in Mexico policy that forced tens of thousands of asylum seekers to wait in dangerous conditions in Mexico for their day in U.S. immigration courts. In both cases, lower courts ruled against the Trump administration and the Supreme Court agreed to hear appeals. The Biden administration has already taken actions that could make both cases moot. On its first day, the administration halted construction on the border wall and suspended new enrollments in the Remain in Mexico program. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. Competing coronavirus relief packages being bandied about on Capitol Hill today. Though President Biden and his administration seem to be making it clear they are worried about doing too little. Biden has proposed a $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief measure, while some Republican lawmakers are interested in talking about a much smaller aid bill that would total just $618 billion. The meeting is being billed as a discussion and not a negotiation, making it seem likely the administration may move ahead with its plan whether Republicans go along or not. The latest annual report by the Southern Poverty Law Center shows a decline in active hate groups. The report released today says that may be in part because white supremacists and other hate groups are organizing online where they're harder to track. Here's NPR's Hannah Lam. The SPLC's new report identifies 838 active hate groups that operated across the country in 2020. That's down from 940 the previous year. The record high, more than 1,000, was in 2018. The civil rights group cautions that the annual count of active groups is just one tool for gauging levels of hate and bigotry nationwide. Researchers say the drop in the number of active groups shows the evolution in their organizing. Increasingly, white supremacists and neo-Nazis are meeting online without formal group membership or structure. The groups also lose members to infighting and splintering. In addition, the coronavirus pandemic was an obstacle to in-person organizing last year. 
Hannah Lam, NPR News. The erratic herd trading activity that helped propel GameStop and some other stocks to unusual and unsustainable highs appears to have migrated to commodities. Silver futures jumped almost 12 percent to more than $30 an ounce following strong gains over the weekend. On Twitter, the hashtag Silver Squeeze trending just as the latest trading fad to Royal Wall Street from the online forum Wall Street Bets on Reddit. An online army of traders who get their information from Reddit have been buying up out-of-favor companies like GameStop. That's causing heavy losses for some hedge funds. On Wall Street today, the Dow was up 229 points. The Nasdaq rose 332. This is NPR. French President Emmanuel Macron is under pressure from health officials and scientists to institute a nationwide lockdown as the virus continues to spread in France. NPR's owner Beardsley reports Macron is using other restrictions to try to keep the coronavirus in check for now. Shopping malls are closed and anyone living outside the European Union can no longer enter France. The new measures, plus a tightly enforced 6 p.m. overnight curfew, are meant to help curb the spread of the virus. But France seems unable to lower its more than 20,000 new cases a day. Macron has not instituted a third nationwide lockdown because he's said to be worried about people's mental health as the pandemic reaches its one-year mark. Some restaurateurs have threatened to reopen. They've been closed since October. Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire says if restaurants do open, they will lose all of their government pandemic subsidies. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. A plan to reopen Chicago's schools remains in doubt as last-minute negotiations with teachers there over COVID-19 safety measures remain in an impasse. The stalling of talks increasing the possibility of a strike or a lockout as 62,000 students and up to 10,000 teachers grades K-8 through had been expected to start school as part of a gradual reopening. Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot over the weekend had said she expected teachers to show up today. However, she pushed back the arrival of students until tomorrow. Teachers in the nation's third largest school district have fought against returning to classrooms. Critical futures prices moved higher. Oil up a dollar and 35 cents a barrel today to end the session at 53.55 a barrel. This is NPR. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. It is back to business for many parts of L.A.'s economy this month. Restaurants are open for outdoor dining, mini golf and batting cages are hosting guests, and nail salons are reopening, too. KCRW's Ben Gottlieb visited one nail salon that's hanging on by a thread, and they say another outbreak could break them. So we have to put this thing over here. All-Star Nails is a staple in L.A.'s San Fernando Valley. Pre-pandemic, you'd find this place packed with customers and with workers. But like many other nail salons and other personal care services in Los Angeles, this spot operates on tight margins. Before we work long hours and six days a week, now only three. No customer too. My Lamb manages the salon with her cousin, Sandy. Even though things have opened up again, high COVID-19 rates in Los Angeles have kept many of her customers at home. The customer, same like us, they're still afraid to get out. Nobody wants to get sick. We still own the landlord for two months rent. We don't have money to pay for that. At $4,000 a month, Mai says she's not sure when she and her cousin will be able to pay back the money they owe. But failure, they say, is just not an option. If we don't do this, we don't know what to do it. Yeah, because we're in business for so many years, you know, right now. 
So we, even if we join change, we don't know what to do. We don't have any degree on anything, experience to do it. And so they've just got to stay open. To do so, the lambs have installed huge plexiglass protectors that hug their salon's recliners to protect customers and employees. Still, the business is not without risk. LA County health officials say they're prepared to scale back recent openings if the transmission rates and hospitalizations in LA climb back up again, as they did over the holidays. For the California Report, I'm Benjamin Gottlieb in Los Angeles. Staying in L.A., the number of new coronavirus cases is falling, but hospitals there remain full of patients. That's partly due to a lack of oxygen, as KPCC's Jackie Fortier reports. COVID-19 patients who recover enough to go home from the hospital often need supplemental oxygen. Their lungs are very damaged from the disease, and without it, they can't breathe. But with so many COVID patients, oxygen companies are having a hard time keeping up. Kevin Metcalf is the CEO at Memorial Hospital of Gardena. If I have five patients that could go home on oxygen, I'm finding I can't get them out of the hospital because we can't find home oxygen companies that have access to oxygen. The State Office of Emergency Management says people who have recovered must return their home oxygen kits and canisters to help free up hospital beds. L.A. hospitals are still well over normal capacity, and ICU beds remain extremely limited. For The California Report, I'm Jackie Fortier in Los Angeles. We're going to go to the Central Valley now. That's where another worker at Foster Farms plant in Fresno has died from COVID-19, according to the state's workplace safety agency. The California Report Central Valley reporter Alex Hall has more. Now at least four employees have died in connection to the company's plant in South Fresno, where an outbreak in December infected at least 193 workers and prompted a county health department investigation. In nearby Merced County, a judge is ordering the company to continue following COVID safety protocols at its Livingston plant, where an outbreak last year resulted in nine deaths. The United Farm Workers Union and two employees sued Foster Farms in December. They're arguing the company failed to enforce social distancing, provide masks to workers, or inform them of safety protocols and sick leave benefits. Foster Farms says its appeal in the case will prove it's in full compliance with workplace safety rules. For The California Report, I'm Alex Hall in Fresno. Support for The California Report comes from Hint. Fruit-infused water in over 25 flavors. No sweeteners, no calories. In stores or delivered from drinkhint.com. Hint. Water with a touch of true fruit flavor. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute, working to advance the frontiers of ocean research, sharing the connection between life on land and life at sea with everyone everywhere. And Stanford Medicine, protecting your health and providing dependable care with safe in-person appointments and video visits. StanfordHealthCare.org slash AdaptingCare. Three new massive sugar pine trees have been discovered in the Sierra Nevada, ranking as second, third, and sixth largest sugar pines in the world. As KQED's Julie Chang reports, they could offer valuable clues about climate change. 
Professional big tree hunter Michael Taylor discovered the trees in October by combining satellite imagery with LIDAR data. LIDAR, which stands for Light Detection and Ranging, is a process that uses laser beams emitted from a plane to scan the Earth. Maria Mercheva is the executive director of the Sugar Pine Foundation. She says scientists can see the tree's rings by getting a sample of their core. From there, they can assess changes in the environment over the years and even predict the future. Scientists study the ice cores to learn about past concentrations of CO2. So it's similar with the tree ring. Okay, in the past, there was a big drought. What happened? Did that reverse? How long did it take? Two of the trees were found in the Tahoe National Forest and the third in the Stanislaus National Forest. That was KQED's Julie Chang. Finally this morning, new stats out of the University of California show a record number of applications for this coming fall and a remarkable surge in underrepresented groups looking for a spot. While applications increased about 16% overall, 22% more black potential freshmen applied. I spoke with LA Times reporter Teresa Watanabe, and I asked her why there's been such a spike in applications this year. The number one reason people cite is that the UC dropped requirements for an SAT or ACT test score this year. So everyone says the standardized testing prohibition was the probably the biggest reason, but definitely the pandemic had some effect. Some students that I interviewed said they did apply to UC this year. Because of the pandemic, they were stuck at home all day, so they had time to get their applications out. Oh, wow. Yeah, they were not out doing community service or playing basketball or club activities. They were just home. And when I talked to some of the admissions officers, they did say that when they opened the admission window on November 1st of last year, they were shocked at how many applications flooded in that first week, way more than usual. That was LA Times reporter Teresa Watanabe. You can listen to our full interview on our podcast. And that is the California Report for this Monday, February 1st, a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Lily Jamali. Thanks so much for listening. A winter storm is forecast for our area starting in a few hours, with showers expected to begin in Nevada City and Grass Valley at around 9 p.m. Half an inch of rain could fall overnight, with rain expected all day Tuesday, and highs in the mid-40s, lows in the mid-30s. Wednesday, we'll see rain and possible snow showers with a high of 39 and lows in the mid-30s. Rainfall totals through Wednesday could reach three inches for the Nevada City Grass Valley area. A winter storm warning is in effect late tonight through Wednesday morning with hazardous conditions and major travel delays likely in the Sierra Nevada. The National Weather Service says travel is highly discouraged. Its forecast is for 12 to 18 inches or more of snow above 4,500 feet through Wednesday morning. In Truckee, snow is expected to develop overnight and continue through Tuesday. Truckee high temperatures will be in the mid-30s with snow accumulation of 5 to 8 inches on Tuesday and about 1 inch on Wednesday. In Sacramento, showers developing tonight with rainfall of nearly half an inch expected overnight, then clearing in the afternoon Tuesday with mostly cloudy conditions, a high of 59 and a low of 39. Dry weather and warmer temperatures should return to our area by Thursday and continue through the weekend.
The Nevada County Department of Public Health announced over the weekend that a new tool is available to residents who are interested in finding out when they might be eligible to receive a COVID-19 vaccine. The myturn.ca.gov website has gone live, and theoretically, residents can use it to find out if it's their turn to get vaccinated and, in the future, to schedule vaccination appointments. However, the announcement came with a disclaimer that there are currently no appointments available in Nevada County via this online system. County officials say that is expected to change over the next few weeks. The county is prioritizing vaccines for specific groups based on exposure risks, such as teachers or people living in congregate care, And the county announced on its website last week that it is expanding eligibility to some residents age 75 and older. Libraries in Nevada County continue to be closed due to the coronavirus pandemic, but the Nevada County Community Library started off the month of February by launching a new mobile app designed to give library users easier access to library resources. The app provides an interface to search the library catalog, place items on hold, check due dates, and renew items. The app is available for download free on mobile devices. The Sacramento Bee reported today that most of the city's public library branches will reopen for browsing next week. The Los Angeles Times reports today that despite opposition and resistance from some restaurant owners and elected officials, there is increasing evidence that California's latest stay-at-home order, including a ban on outdoor dining, worked to flatten the coronavirus curve, especially in Southern California. Governor Gavin Newsom announced last week that he was lifting the stay-at-home order that had been in place in most of the state since early December. After weeks of overwhelmed hospitals and record death tolls, the improvements seemed sudden and surprising, according to the LA Times. But experts say they are the consequence of changes that Californians started to make two months ago. In early December, Californians began moving around their communities at a rate 40% lower than what is typical, the lowest level since May, due to a combination of Newsom's orders as well as a natural reaction to alarming case numbers and rhetoric from officials, said Ali Mokdad, an epidemiologist at the University of Washington. California officials estimated that the state's order, which prohibited non-essential travel, banned outdoor social gatherings, and closed nail and hair salons, kept as many as 25,000 people from landing in the hospital with a severe case of COVID-19. Scientists say that they can't tease out which part of the order was most effective in turning the tide, but several leading public health experts interviewed by the LA Times agreed that the outdoor dining ban probably played a key role. The Sacramento Bee reports today that over the weekend, Placer County coroner's officials said that the vaccine has been ruled out as a contributing factor in the death of a 64-year-old man who received it hours before dying. Placer County Sheriff had released a statement on January 23rd announcing the January 21st death, but they had offered few other details and said the cause of death was pending. In an update Saturday, Sheriff Coroner's officials in Placer County made clear the vaccine wasn't to blame. I'm speaking with Frank McLean. He's the co-creator and facilitator of Beyond Trauma, 
The Balanced Relationships Project. Frank, thanks for talking with me. Hey, great to be here, Claudio. I heard your talk during the recent Public Awareness Forum for Domestic and Sexual Violence. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Well, I present this, uh, I present the Beyond Trauma, the Balanced Relationships Project in association with the Community Beyond Violence. And what we, what I do there is, uh, many years ago, I ran across this statement that, uh, what if violence was the enforcement arm of dominance, and therefore what we have in terms of the violence problem, maybe more importantly or underlying, we have a, a dominance problem. So in this project, uh, uh, we describe the forms of do- uh, violence used to create and sustain dominance, and we believe that uh, we humans dominate by taking the attitude of, I want what I want when I want it, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it. Now, we propose that whatever it takes to get it, uh, it, it can be described as specific forms of coercion and control that are really quite common, normal, in fact. We, and we define these forms. In this work, we define the forms. We propose a common structure that, you know, of relationships, how this happens over and over again. And we present predictable steps in an incident uh, of, of control or coercion or abuse. And like I said, many times these are just what well, many people would consider just a normal interaction. So what happens that then after folks get a chance to look at this information, um, they just get to decide whether they want to continue doing that kind of thing, being in these types of relationships. And then if they, when we present forms, uh, tools for transformation uh, that include, um, well, this shifting posture, becoming more aware of uh, physical nonverbal communication and becoming more skilled at being present uh, with what's happening right now, with what we call what is. And then the participants work to implement their intentions. And the intention we shift to is to see, hear, matter, include, and empower uh, others and ourselves, and then to actively create equal relationships instead of the dominant relationships that most of us have uh, grown up with. One of my one of the participants summarized the transformation as seeing what she had to gain instead of what she had to lose, and I I was pretty excited about that. Additionally, we present a structure for communication and action, which is based on awareness of multiple elements of the current situation. You know, like getting real clear of what's going on right now instead of like dismissing, oh that's not happening or you didn't say that or I didn't say that kind of thing. And then getting clear on what our intention is and then taking action based on what's working right now and focusing on what's working instead of what's wrong. So that's basically what we do. How did you get into this kind of work? I, uh, I, I was a really good student of how to have a relationship that didn't work. So after being really good at having failed relationships, uh, my stepdaughter told me that I was an abusive man, and if I didn't do something about it, she didn't want to be around me. And that, I said, well, I, that's not what I came here for. And so I uh, called up the local uh, organization like Community Beyond Violence. It wasn't Community Beyond Violence, but it was like Community Beyond Violence. And, and said, so my stepdaughter says that I'm abusive, but I don't think so. And I talked to a, uh, an individual there and he said, yeah, six o'clock Monday, come on down. And I ended up being in that program for a year and a half, and then continued on to facilitate in that program for another year and a half. And how is that program related to what you do now? What I'm doing now is an outgrowth of that program. Much of the the initial part of the of the work of defining 
violence and divining how we abuse each other. There's elements of that. However, they're also been quite refined because that was 30 years ago. And I've been studying this, contemplating this, discussing this, uh, working with other people and in the last three years uh, doing these, uh, these, this uh, group through Community Beyond Violence. So it's, that was the springboard. That was the starting point. We then we took that information and, and have expanded and, and researched quite a bit since then. And what would you say is the core of that work? The core of our work is creating relationships in which it's safe to be yourself. For the people around you to safe to be themselves, for you to safe to be yourself. One of the key pieces of that is, is uh, no is a complete sentence. I do a women's group, and when I do, do the women's group and, and say that, I, how many times I've, I've said, you know, well, what if no was a complete sentence? And I've heard many women say, wow, that would be heaven. What would that be like if I just said, no, I don't want to do this, and it wasn't just the beginning of an argument or coercion, somebody trying to force me to do something I didn't want to do. So it's primarily about creating a place where you're we're creating relationships in which the people in the relationships uh, can truly be themselves, where they can be, where we can be seen, heard, mattered, included, and empowered. During your talk, I heard you define violence in an interesting way, perhaps in a way that I know I didn't think about before. Could you talk about that, please? Yeah, uh, it it seems kind of. So imposing a role, what does that mean? It means that we human beings are, are constantly writing scripts for the movie that we're in, that the, the play that we're in. And we have, a, we have a script for everything. We have a script for the light switch, for the car battery, for the dog, for the light pole, for my wife. For the, you know, for, we seem to have a list of things that, that should be happening. And then what happens commonly is we then tell other people that this is how you should be. And so we impose this script, this role on them. And most of us human beings, uh, many of us go, hey, that's not me. I don't want, you know, what do you, I don't want to be that person. They say, well, it doesn't matter what you want. Um, this is the way you're going to be. And so the shortest definition of violence that I've been able to come up with is imposing a role on someone or some country or some group. When you put it that way, it seems to me like that's pretty common in our society. I think you called it normal. Yeah, normal simply means, that the statistical normal just means it's something that occurs more than anything else. If you look at a bell curve, it's the middle part of the bell curve. It doesn't mean that it's good, bad, indifferent, it's harmful, not harmful. It just means it's what happens more often than anything else which is the purpose of this work, the, the, the man that I, that, I, that I trained with, that I facilitated with, co-facilitated with at the beginning of this uh, uh, 30 years ago, went on and worked in San Quentin, did this work in San Quentin for 16 years. And he told me of a young man that came in there and said, uh, hey, why have I got to come in here to get this, this information? Where were you guys when I was in high school? That's right. We, we have programs for in jails. We have programs in prison. We have programs for guys that have been arrested uh, primarily. But we don't, we never had, this, to my understanding, a program that was simply about, well, what about us in the community taking a look at what is we consider normal? What would it be like if we were in the community and started asking this question, am I imposing a role 
on myself? Am I making myself do something I don't really want to do? Or am I imposing a role on my partner or on the folks at work? Or how's that, how's that going? So I think I'm hearing that, that you can be violent towards yourself, not just other people. Yeah, that's what we always talk about. You know, we have a little hand signal, but the hands pointing towards each other. And I always talk about, well, you know, there's that other relationship. We have relationships in the world, but then there's that other relationship. And that other relationship is the one that never goes away because it's the relationship with myself. And many of us grew up in situations where we had to impose roles on ourselves in order to successfully survive. And once we've learned how to impose a role on ourselves, it seems that we get pretty good at it. And we impose it on ourselves and on other people. We coerce them. We control them. We can do this really outwardly. We can do it very subtly. Um, Nonetheless, the biggest issue, and like I say, is the the biggest relationship, the longest-term relationship I'm going to have is the one with myself. And finally, Frank, why do you do this work? I do it because of what that young man said. I do it because I wish that someone had been there when I was younger with this information. I've been speaking with Frank McLean. He's the co-creator and facilitator of Beyond Trauma, the Balanced Relationships Project. He recently spoke at the Public Awareness Forum entitled Domestic and Sexual Violence, How It Touches Us All. The forum is currently available to view at nevadacountymedia.org forward slash programming. You can find more information about the Community Beyond Violence at their website, cbv.org. The 24-hour crisis line is 530-272-3467. Thanks for your time, Frank. Glad to be here. Thanks for, thanks for talking with me, Claudio. My name is Claudio Mendoza, and I'm happy and honored to have been hired as KVMR's new news director. First, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Paul Emery for showing me the ropes during this transitionary period. Paul has served our community for many years, in many ways, and I will always be grateful for his support. Thanks as well to Charlotte Peterson and Felton Pruitt. Felton will continue to file stories with us, and I hope Charlotte will as well. I grew up in the Central Valley of California and my earliest memories include a radio softly murmuring in the background. My parents immigrated to this country in 1977, and it was through radio that they were able to feel connected to the old country. In fact, that AM station is still a community hub for them and others who immigrated from the Azores. When I was 17, I discovered a radio station that made me feel like I had a community of my own. In a sea of opinions and ideas that I had trouble relating to, That little community radio station made me feel included. That is what I hope KVMR does for you. We here at the station want to hear from you. We want to know what you think about things. We want to air your thoughts and your opinions. We want to foster healthy and respectful discussion. At our website, kvmr.org, under the News tab, you'll find guidelines on submitting commentary. I hope you'll take a look and consider doing so. If you have news or would like us to take a look into something, send us an email at news at kvmr.org. That's N-E-W-S at kvmr.org. Thanks for listening, and thank you for supporting non-commercial community radio. 
You've been listening to the KVMR Evening News on KVMR Nevada City. Stay tuned for Disability Wrap coming up next at 6.30, followed by Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman at 7 p.m.